your career is not who you are, your family is not who you are, you are who you are, and you have to come to terms with who you are and accept who you are. We have these ideals of how we should be. Should, should, should. I should be, you know, the perfect person. I should have the perfect mate. I should have the perfect job. Should, 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 as opposed to who am I? What do I want? Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson, your host and composer of the music you hear in this podcast. Clara Hill, a professor of psychology at University of Maryland, has devoted her life to exploring what makes us tick. Her seminal work, Helping Skills, just released in its fifth edition, has had a major impact on the way psychologists are trained. Professor Hill has written extensively on meaning and purpose in our lives, the interpretation of dreams, qualitative research, and is now undergoing a multi-year study exploring what ingredients really make a difference in successful therapy. After 220 journal articles, 55 chapters in books, and 14 books, I wanted to know how she began her highly productive career and what lessons we might all learn from her extensive work in the field of psychology. Welcome, Clara, and very happy to have you. I couldn't believe how many pearls of wisdom were in this book called Helping Skills, which is coming out in the fifth edition uh, designed to help uh, train therapists, um, future therapists, and you call them helpers, uh, a more uh, general term for it. Um, And I guess one of my first questions is, what drew you personally to psychology? How did you wind up doing this? Great question. Um, well, my family was very much into trying to understand everybody. We all tried to understand each other. My father was a preacher. My mother was a social worker. Um, and we just all kind of wanted to try to understand why we did what we did. So that was just kind of a family thing. So it just felt natural. It felt like... Um, uh, it felt like a good home to me to go into psychology. But it was a, a natural outcome, I guess, for yeah. you, it sounds like, to go to go into psychology because yeah. of that. Yeah, it just felt like we all, I did, I wasn't a great communicator at the beginning. I wasn't a good, I wasn't a natural, th- natural helper. People didn't really come to me as a kid, which most of the students in our classes talk about is that they're natural helpers and everybody comes to them as the yeah. one who can help. Right. Um, I was more the listener, but not so much, I didn't have the skills, which is why I was so excited when I took my first course in helping skills that, oh, I can figure out a way to learn these skills and use them to help others. So it's it's kind of a myth maybe that people uh, are sort of born to be, to have the proclivity to be therapists, do you think? or Well, there may be something genetic, I'm not sure, but I think they learn very early in life about empathy and about understanding other people's pain and about helping others. I think there's often a place that kids have in the family 
where they're the helpers, they're the ones who help their parents and their siblings. So I think there's a spot that's in the family for people who want to be helpers. That's so true, because I feel that way in, mm-hmm. in my own family. You can mm-hmm. see that role emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And uh, so your interest also, in, and I don't know this from a chronological standpoint, but your interest in meaning in life, where do you think that stems from? Well, clearly, I had a very religious background. My father was a minister. Um, we were taught the meaning of life. Um, it was clear that that was given. Mm-hmm. And as a teenager, I rebelled against that and didn't like it. Really? And I wanted to figure out my own way. And that was not accepted in my family. They did not like my questioning. Um, and I think that's partly what propelled me into psychology, too, is that, that wanting to make my own decisions and my own understanding, my own meaning. And, and slowly through the years, you know, I kind of rejected the religious background I grew up with, kind of in some ways turned to science and psychology and kind of have had to not reject it, but understand it in a new way, put it in a new uh, situation so I could make my own understanding of the world. So meaning, and especially as I got closer to retirement. That's interesting. uh, I think, you know, meaning, you know, because my meaning had been in my career and in my family. And if I give up my career, what's my meaning? Especially my kids are grown. You know, what, what meaning do I have now entering the next phase of my life? And it is a major question mm-hmm. how you obtain, you know, meaning exactly. and purpose when you've had such a major change in your life. Mm-hmm. Any, any, any other thoughts on the best way to approach that if you happen to be in that situation? I think a lot of reflection. Therapy is wonderful. People go to therapy to work through these things, talking about it, but really reflecting and trying to understand what gave you meaning before, what can give you meaning next. In your book, uh, Helping Skills, you you talk about uh, uh, Socrates, who said famously that the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, Can you talk about what this means for people? Yeah. So the helping skills model, just to go back a little a step, um, is exploration, where you really dig into trying to think about what you're thinking about, what you're feeling, what your thoughts are, what your cognitions are, your experiences. And then in the next stage is insight, where you try to understand that at a deeper level. And then once you have some understanding, you move on to action and trying to figure out where you want to go next. So. Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living, comes really in the insight stage, where we're really trying to understand what, who we are at a deeper level, which means integrating past into present, integrating future into present, understanding a meaning in life. Um, it's very much, um, people have said, we need an explanation, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it, so lots of times, like in my family, an explanation was given I didn't want that explanation. I have to come up with a new explanation, a new narrative, a new way of understanding the world and my role in the world. So very much insight and understanding in, in the insight stage is trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be and how you fit. So we need to examine ourselves. We need to think and reflect and reconstruct our stories. Suppose 
you have someone who is not a particularly reflective person Mm -hmm. who has a narrative that they formed, but it's just that it's the wrong narrative or it's not a very uh, insightful narrative about who they are. And I pull in, um, when I think about that famous quote from Socrates, his his student Plato um, wrote about an allegory of people being in a cave and looking at the the shadow on the walls of the cave uh, that was being thrown from, from a fire, but not really realizing that they were seeing that they weren't seeing the real objects. Mm-hmm. And how does that relate to this ability to reflect and motivation to reflect on your life? Uh, on your life. Well. Um... I mean, that's a really good question. You know, what's real, what's not real? And, you know, I think, especially when we get into psychology, it's hard to say what's real and not real. I mean, so truth, uh, you know, truth is how we perceive it. And so my perception of the world may not be the same as your perception of the world. That doesn't mean yours is right and mine is wrong or the other. Um, There is something about having it fit what, most people think. Um, So, you know, kind of getting feedback, I think, is not just self-reflection, but I think feedback is very important from trusted people to, to know, am I viewing the world the same way you are? What might be why I'm not reviewing it the same way you are? And, I mean, the, the shadows on the wall, they are real. They're shadows. So, Who's to say they're not as important as the real thing? It's like our dreams as important as what happens in waking life. There's still experiences we have. So, you know, I, I think the whole notion of what's real and not real is very difficult to, to define. That, that's interesting. When you think about people's willingness to be reflective mm-hmm. about their lives and what makes them tick, um, do you think that I mean, obviously, some people have kind of maybe more skill in that or more willingness mm-hmm. to look deeper inside themselves and and reflect, and others are not. Is one goal of psychology to get them from the stage of non-reflection to the stage of reflection, even if they may not be motivated or even if they think, those shadows on the wall of that cave are actually real. And there's no need to step out of the cave to look yeah. at the reality. Well, I think there's there's two kind of groups, to put it simplistically. There's the people who are not unhappy yeah. and they're not reflective. And that's not a problem because they are living their lives and they're doing fine. So why should we make them reflective? And then there's another group of people who are defended. So they're not reflective because they've had trauma in the past, which we all have, but a a degree of trauma that makes it so uncomfortable that they can't reflect. And they're repressing, in Freud's term, all the uncomfortable experiences and not allowing them. They're putting up barriers and defenses to protect themselves from reality and from the world. And they're escaping and going back to the comfortable spot. They're the people who we are more concerned about because they're so restricted in their living. So if somebody's totally comfortable and happy and not defended and not reflective, that's fine. 
You know, they have beliefs that may not go along with mine, but they're living a fine life. That's terrific. It's, but it's more the people who are defended and unhappy that I'm concerned about. And, and sometimes those people who are unhappy are not necessarily willing to get the help that they need. And what, yeah. what about that situation, how you, how you get them to the point mm-hmm. of being motivated to be reflective? Lots of times it's not willing. It's, again, these defenses, so much of that's happened to them is so difficult that they just can't go there. So it's not the motivation issue. It's that they're so paralyzed with anxiety. The whole notion, there's a phrase, God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. I hate that because God gives plenty of people more than, more they, than they can, can handle. handle. There's a lot of people who just I don't like that either. Yeah. really cannot handle everything they've been dealt because they're biologically badly disposed to being able to handle it, or they just don't have coping strategies, or they've been so badly damaged that they can't handle it. So how do we get them? I don't think we get them there. <laughs> I think they have to, I think if, if they come to therapy, we can establish a safe relationship with them by being non-judgmental, empathic, trying to be compassionate, understand their worlds, but I don't think we can make them be something they don't want. They want to have, they genuinely have to want to come out of themselves. But I think a, a trusting relationship can help them do that. It doesn't have to be with a therapist. It has yeah. to be with another person who's safe and trusting. At the beginning, in the introduction, I talked about how the helping skills model that you uh, expound on in, in, in your book um, can be, some of it can be extracted to um, improve, I think, relationships. Absolutely. And what do you think those salient points are that can be extracted? Yeah. Biggest one is listening. As somebody said, what a gift it is to listen to somebody else. Not try to change them, not try to get them to do be what you want them to be, but just to listen to them, to listen to them and let them speak. There's a phrase that I use in there, how do I know what I'm thinking until I hear myself say it? You know, so letting somebody talk, I mean, so much of what goes on with us is we're, we have feelings, but they're unspecific, and we have to struggle to put words on it. And so having somebody listen, as, as Carl Rogers said in his real early work, having that sounding board, having somebody just listen, helps us explore what we're feeling. And that's, so, so, so for many, many people, that's all they need is just somebody to listen, to, to value them, not try to tell them what to do but just to listen. And that's sometimes very difficult. Mm. If it's, let's say, a parent and a child, yeah. and you see them going down a path, and you, you want to be able to help and advise and guide, but that's not always the best approach to take. Right, right. So this, talk a little bit about reflection as it relates to listening, because you talk about right. that in the book as well. Um, you know, people, how do you actually become a good listener? Right. 
First is, I think there's a lot in, the, as Carl Rogers said, the facilitative attitudes, the genuine desire to listen, to be empathic, to understand, to be curious and understand a person at such a deep level. Um, but then I think the, we've just finished doing some research on this, but the, the ability to ask open questions, to ask them to think about, what can you tell me more about that? How does that make you feel? What was that like for you? Can you give me an example of that? All of those are open questions to invite the person to talk. And then there's also the restating, which is kind of restating what the person said. And then the reflecting is the reflecting feelings and kind of, I think I heard you being kind of sad when you were there. Can you talk more about that? What's that feeling like for you? So we're trying to help the person explore their thoughts and feelings. Yes. Okay. So those are the critical skills. Um, I really like this quote from Ram Das. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who said, I help people to work on myself, and I work on myself to help people. Absolutely. Talk about that for a little bit. It's one of the things we often, I was talking to somebody yesterday, the whole notion, should we require therapists to be in therapy themselves? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we can require people to do therapy because requiring people to do anything doesn't, isn't very helpful. But I think it's crucial for people who want to be therapists to reflect on themselves and to be self-aware. So you can only help somebody else to the extent that you are aware of your own issues so that you're not putting your own issues onto the client and projecting them onto the client. So there's a level of self-awareness that's just absolutely crucial. And every therapy, the therapist I know who are really good therapists, they get something out of every therapy experience with a client. They grow because they're watching people grow and helping them grow and being participating in that. So they can help others because they themselves are clearer about who they are and, and can help other people on that same journey. With interpersonal relationships, what do you think gets in the way the most? And I'm not talking about now client and um, therapist, but just person to person mm -hmm. in a kind of non-professional way. What do you think are the, are the big barriers that you see that block people from having better relationships? Um, two things. One is trying to make the other person more into what we want them to be trying to change the other person. Um, that, I think, gets in the way completely because it's not accepting the other person. The other thing is not communicating. So, for example, a client I had last night was knew clearly what she wanted but couldn't tell her husband what she wanted. She just felt totally restricted. So not being able to say, clearly, here's what I want. Then the other person can say, no, here's what I want, and then you can negotiate. But so it's being aware, accepting the other person, and then good communication. So this three-stage model that you talk about in uh, the book, Helping Skills, Exploration, Insight, and Action, um, how would that be of value to someone, let's say, who's not a therapist, mm -hmm. but wants to live maybe a more 
more examined life than the life they're leading now. Right. Well, there's two parts to that. One is the part of how they could do it for themselves, and then the other part is how they can work with other people. And in terms of self, um, certainly to explore your own feelings and thoughts through journaling, through um, therapy, through reflection is crucial then kind of trying to come to insights, trying to understand yourself at a deeper level, and then trying to figure out how do I want to change? How do I want to be different in my life? So that's the self-examination part, whether done on your own or through therapy. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is how do you, how do you communicate better with other people? And, and that, I think, involves listening and a lot mostly the exploration skills. So when talk about a few of the yeah, exploration skills. That yeah. So there, I'm talking about you know, asking open questions. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me more about what went on with you today. What was that like for you? How, how did that feel? So rather than jumping immediately to, here's what you should do about that, to really step back and just let them talk. I mean, that's what most people want in a relationship. They just want to talk. And usually in a good relationship, it's 50-50. So it's not just you're listening to the other person, but you know, you listen half the time and then you talk half the time. So it's an equal sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really important is to look at the relationship and see, well, who's doing most of the talking and who's, who's you know, sharing more. So that's exploration and then action. Talk about action. Well... A lot in relationships, I would steer away from insight and action more because, you know, I would I want to be there for the other person. I want to listen to them. I want to hear them saying, but I'm, I just don't want to move into insight and action too much because I want them to do that on their own. I don't want to be their therapist. Yeah. I want to be their friend, neighbor, partner. Um, I mean, there's sometimes that even if I... If I do have an interpretation, I just I see what they're doing, I might phrase it in a, well, you know, this might be my own stuff, but, you know, here's what I see, what do you think? So very, very tentative and very, very infrequent. And why is that? Because I don't want to be their therapist. I don't okay. want to take over. I don't want to think I know more than they do about their life. I really want to... Listen, I want to, you know, that's more what a good relationship, I think, is. And do you think that that is the main difference between, let's say, an interpersonal relationship that's not therapeutic and professional versus one that is? Yeah, yeah, I think much more. Now, the one one skill that I haven't talked about is immediacy. And I think that crosses both um, regular relationships and therapy. And that's talking very openly about what's going on between us. You know, here's how I feel when I'm with you. What do you feel? Um, that, I think, is crucial because then we get things out in the open. Um, again, a person I was talking to yesterday said somebody was mad at her for a year, and she didn't have any idea about it. Yeah. So she couldn't change it. So if, you've got, if, you've got, if you're mad about something, tell me. Let's work on it. But get it out in the open. And that's so hard, that concept of, Tell me what's going on between us. Maybe it's distorted, maybe it's real, but let's get it out in the open. And that is a skill that I think kind of crosses both therapy and relationships, and it's crucial yeah. to good relationships. And how, if you are in a relationship where the other person is not very 
open and tends not to communicate. Mm-hmm. What do you do in that kind of situation, both as a therapist, well, let's talk about it not so much as a therapist, but just interpersonally. Right, right. Difficult, right? Very hard, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I would still say how I felt, but I would also not try to get all my relationship needs from that one person. Mm. So often in couples, we try to get all of our needs met from one person. And some, you know, relationships are great, but they don't satisfy all needs. So maybe we need some friends who can satisfy some of those aspects of the relationship too. Mm -hmm. But I would still want to talk with my partner or friend about how I'm feeling about in the relationship. And you think by talking about it that it will encourage them to talk about it too? Well, I think we can we can't do it with the aim of changing the other person i think the aim we can have is saying what we feel and doing our part of it Mm -hmm. and at some point if that doesn't work you have to think twice about the relationship i mentioned uh before um in the very beginning about this idea of connectedness and isolation and how i think and there's been a huge body of research done on that too um how does that feed into your work and I I don't just mean I guess I do mean digital primarily uh but you know on devices and on the computer and not necessarily present in the moment because Mm -hmm. everything you're talking about about having healthy relationships involves immediacy and being present and as that gets taken away from us to some extent or we veer away from that immediacy what kind of an impact do you think it's going to have on us I think it can be very detrimental because I do think we need connection I think it goes back to John Bowlby and attachment as talk about that for a minute children infants need to be attached to parents or caregivers Um, and that secure attachment is what keeps us going in life if we have that at the beginning that serves as a buffer it helps us negotiate all our relationships with other people and to to i I think there is a danger in so many people going off and being connected only to computers and and whatever and i think that that's going to be that's going to be bad (laughs) in the future um so i think you know people need to i think we need a certain amount of alone time all Mm -hmm. of us um, some why, people need more than others. Why do you think we need that alone time? I think there's a self that we need to nurture and to figure out who we are. We need to meditate or be mindful or whatever it takes to figure out who am I, what do I want, and then who am I in connection with other people. Um, so I think they're both there. It's like the, um, I mean, there are so many metaphors you can come up Yin with. Yin and yang or right, whatever. Yeah. Right, but... I, I think we both need a strong self to be able to have a relationship. If you don't have a strong self, you can't have a good relationship. And the need to uh, maybe have other people witness our lives um, in facebook and 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 in other ways where we're sharing pictures all the time and we're documenting and we're wanting to share this what do you think is behind all of that 
Oh, I'm not sure. But I, I, the one thing I will say, I think the negative thing about that is that we only share good things and then we don't get support. And I think social mm. support is crucial for, you know, to be able to not just say all the wonderful things, the Christmas letter of everything that's great, but to be able to turn to friends when you have a serious illness, when there's an accident, when there's a rape, when there's a trauma, and yeah. be able to get that pouring of social support and to give others. So I think that's crucial and that's totally missing with all the social media. And do you think it's diminishing with the social media? Do you think it's that there's less sharing and less of a willingness to share? It's sort of, them. I'm asking you kind of a very general question, right. but with future yeah, generations I that are... I don't know. I, I worry about that you know, as future generations get more sucked into these kind of things. I mean, I can see with my own children that, you know, they both do social media and they have wonderful relationships. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. No. But I think people may have to work a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. So maybe the helping skills, again, that comes back to that's why that's so important to teach people how to enrich their lives that way. When I read helping skills, uh, as I said before, there's so there were so many just really brilliant points in that book. Mm -hmm. and I, I was it was so well done. And I I was uh i kept thinking wow i have to do this more often i have to do that i have to remember what she talks about in this section because i think it's even though it's designed for therapists i feel like if people used some of those techniques and right. strategies it would improve their lives Absolutely. and so how maybe maybe you need to do another book <laughs> on on taking taking the the wisdom out of that book and applying mm. it to everyday life. Great idea. Maybe you could write that. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I just feel like there's so many lessons yeah. to be learned exactly. uh, from it and um, that you don't have to be an aspiring therapist right. in order to get Actually, out lots of, that. Actually, lots of students take the Helping Skills course. It's one of the most popular courses in the university. And they often say that, that, it's it's great for all their other relationships. So I think we have yet to figure out quite how to study that, but I think uh, it does help people with their regular relationships. Listen more. Quit giving as much advice. Don't interrupt. Simple things. Yes. Pay attention to how other people react when you do things. we have this vision of ourselves right. in our work world. And when that shifts, when our role shifts, mm -hmm. how do we then try to figure out, okay, I did this for X number of years and that gave me meaning and how, how do I dig down to find that meaning and purpose at right. this next phase? Right. It's difficult. I think we have to really, again, come back to reflection and figure out what will give me that same satisfaction what can I do? Does it have to be in paid employment? Does it have to be, um, there's this village concept that our community has a village and aging in place. And there's a lot of people who join clubs and join groups and start other hobbies. I personally don't really have any hobbies. And so, I mean, what I, when I think of what I would do, I start thinking, well, I still love my research. So I'm gonna continue doing my research as long as I can. 
I love running my clinic, so I'm going to run my clinic as long as I can. Um, and so I'm going to try to pick the things that I really love doing and get rid of the rest and just do what I want to do. And so I think there's that, that giving, getting the freedom, which is a privilege, and not everybody has that privilege, but having the privilege to really think about, what do I want to do? I mean, I've heard so many people say, um, you know, I don't have a specific plan. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's almost, they. I feel that they, I get the feeling they're lost yeah. in some way. Right. And uh, how they navigate that next stage seems right. to me to be not easy. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's not easy. But I think there really is, what do I enjoy doing? What do I like doing? So it's different for every person. It's, it's very similar. Somebody, somebody talked about retirement as being like adolescence. It's trying to figure out who we are, what we want to do. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And figure, figuring out a career as an adolescent is really hard. You know, yes. you might, especially for very talented people or for people who have no talents, you know, people in the middle, there's some people who, you know, had a medical crisis when they were a kid and they know they want to be a doctor. But for most people, they struggle. They go through three or four majors in college. They, you know, maybe even start a career, then they stop and do something else. And maybe in the future, we'll do more of that. You'll have one thing, then you'll get tired of it and you'll do something else. Then and we see else. that that trend happening yeah. right now. Yeah. Your your research right now. What do you? What questions are you trying yeah. to answer right now? Well, what I'm most excited about right now is is um, having written the helping skills book. I think we know quite a bit now from our research about how to teach helping skills, how to train trainer, how to train therapists. Mm -hmm. um, what we don't have as much information about, surprisingly, is the effectiveness of the specific skills in psychotherapy. So, I mean, this is a big controversy in psychotherapy about we know psychotherapy works. We have very, very good evidence of that. We know that there's very few differences between different approaches to psychotherapy, like psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral and existential and all the very few differences. We know that the therapeutic relationship is very important. But then beyond that, we don't really know what things therapists do that make a difference. It's been very hard to study. Is it hard to study because it's hard to parse out yeah. what they're doing? It's not only hard to parse out what they're doing, it's hard to figure out how all of it works together to affect outcome. So you have, let's say, five years of therapy, and then you have the final outcome of the client getting better in several ways. Well, tracing back to what exactly caused that, mm -hmm. it's multi-determined. There's many things. It all goes together in a big ball of wax. How much of it is dependent on the individual therapist and their kind of personality and... Eight to 10 percent. <laughs> I would think it would be more. Yeah. Well, but client that, variables are yeah. much more. There's client variables usually people say account for two-thirds of the variance. So how motivated the client is, how much they want to change, how um, ready they are to change. I mean, because they're the ones who change. Yes. So how, how do you research th this question you're talking about? Well, fortunately, I have this lovely clinic. People, clients come in for a low fee. They agree to participate in research. Um, and we look at, we 
videotape everything, and then we look at what they were doing before a particular intervention and what they were doing after. So for You mean as the therapy's going along? As the therapy's going yeah. along. So okay. we can isolate, well, if we think interpretations are helpful, let's see, do, do clients gain more insight right away, later? You're talking about dream interpretations or, or, or any just kind. any kind. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So looking at very specific skills and looking to see, can we see an immediate effect? Does the client gain insight right away? Does the collaboration go up? Do they get more involved? And then looking at more delayed outcomes. So it's very, very intensive because we can do a case study, or, but really what works is, or more important is doing over many, many, many clients to see client variables and therapist variables. And so that requires huge amounts of time and people coding lots of sessions, which is why it's not done much because it's very time intensive and labor intensive. But of course, if you figure it out, then it has huge benefits. Huge benefits, because yeah. it has a lot to do with how we train therapists. Yeah. So let's say immediacy, which we've done a lot of work with, is important. Well, let's show exactly in what way, how do clients respond when therapists are immediate? You know, do they get more immediate themselves, which is what we've been able to show? Do they open up? Does it begin to repair ruptures in the relationship? Um, well, it's been the last, I would say, 10 years we've been doing a number of studies about this, and I know I'm going to continue doing that. I mean, that's what I really want to give an evidence base for what the therapist does, because a lot of the research shows that therapist techniques aren't very important, but yeah. I think they've been very poorly done. So I don't think we've been able to answer that question well. So I want to come up with a new research paradigm that will help us understand that. What do you think the future of psychology is going to look like in a world that is going to be very different in a lot of ways from from the past? And we've seen these major changes in culture and in um, uh, understanding, you know, ways of communicating. How do you think it's going to morph? Great question. Some ways I think it's going to go in good directions and some ways not so good directions. We'll talk about but, both. Yeah, the good directions I think I think um, telepsychology, where you do psychology, you don't necessarily have to be in the same room with a person. You mm -hmm. can do therapy over Skype or Zoom or whatever. The virtual therapy mm -hmm. where you put yourself, you feel like you're in the room with someone else. Mm -hmm. I think those kind of methods can be particularly good for people who are isolated, who won't come into an office, who are out in rural settings. Um, so I think there's, there's good possibilities there. I still, perhaps because of you know, my generation, mm -hmm. I like the, like the in-person much better. I like the feeling that I get of working with somebody in person. I just think it's different. I don't think we can show it yet. You might be able to. Maybe in the future we'll be able to. But if the choice is no therapy or right. therapy over, Absolutely. you know, a medium like Absolutely. Skype, Absolutely. you think that's... So those are the good mm -hmm. good ways that therapy right. can um, serve us. But what are the things you're concerned about? The, the lack of connection. I think, I think there is something about the personal connection. A lot of therapists I know don't even use computers because they really, they value personal connections. The in the moment with the person, really seeing them. 
So I, I worry that our connections won't be as intense as they have been in the past. And do you think, what about access to getting help, which is part of this is through Skype, but what, what about that aspect? Well, it's a big one. I mean, our clinic here is low fee. A lot of people can't afford therapy. Yeah. A lot of therapists go out and want to charge two or three hundred dollars an hour. Uh, the average person cannot afford that. Yes. We have a lot of people come to the clinic, and our lowest fee is twenty-five dollars. They can't afford that. We mm -hmm. can't. We can't operate if we don't have a certain low fee. But, but there's a lot of people who need therapy who can't get it because of our the lack of access. Crisis counseling serves a big niche, peer counseling, and also very long-term counseling therapy, um, where we some people need to be seen for 10, 20, 30 years. Not you by think crisis so? Oh, absolutely. How, absolutely. Why? Describe that need. Um, I think people have been very damaged in their childhoods. Mm -hmm. That Those are a certain number of people who, who need therapy just for maintenance. But there's other people. I like to think of people who are functioning at 80%. And if, you know, long-term therapy really gives them the support to get up there and function at 95%, yeah. we wouldn't expect people to go to the doctor and never have another cold. No. You know? So people, we have crises all the time in our lives, and some of us, you know, it's good. Most of us get, well, a lot of us get that through our friendships and partnerships, but some people don't get it through that. So long-term therapy is a really good friend who mm -hmm. you can turn to. I think the quick treatments are good for some things, just like crisis therapy is good for some things, good for some fixing quick problems, mm -hmm. but for the real personality change, and I think there's more evidence about this now, for the real personality change and really helping people function better in their lives, not just getting over symptomatology, but really functioning well, living well, enjoying life fully. I think long-term therapy is the only, was one of the big things that helps. It brings to mind this nature-nurture question that, that comes up and, and how much, you know, you're born with your personality and how much can be adapted. And, uh, any mother who's had more than one child knows that they come out and they're different, is yep. all I can say. They're very different. And yep. given that fact, how does that play into the role that therapy can play to really change someone? Or do we change them or do they learn to accept themselves? That's the conundrum. Yes, right? okay, fair enough, yeah. Um, you know, if, we, if we're all about changing people, yeah, you know, it's just like changing partners. It doesn't. So it really work. is. It really. My question is really essentially the wrong question. It's how can you take the person that they are, right, and help them be the best person that they are. Yes. Yeah, and that's that's not changing them. That, that's really that's so crucial. Yes. Um, yeah, because some people are born with deficits. That you know, if you're on the if you're Aspergery. You're mm -hmm. not going to overcome that. No. You're going to figure out coping strategies to deal with it. If you're this or that or whatever, we all learn coping strategies to deal with what we've been dealt biologically. But of course, some of some of 
I mean, I guess the question is that if people have challenges, psychological challenges, yeah. of course, some of it isn't is environment, right? And some of, but once they become adults, how much of that? How, how much can you intervene and help that person? And of course, you would say, yeah. obviously, there's a lot you can do. Well, to- I think what you do is you help them figure out their weak spots. Mm-hmm. So I have a fear of danger. I've had it since I was a child. You can you look do, at early, yeah. yeah. You look at earliest memories. So one of my earliest memories get the. So I know that's, and I'm, I have anxiety all over the place. I know that, and I haven't. I haven't changed that. I've learned to accept it, and I've learned coping strategies. So I don't. You know, there's some basic things in our personalities that we don't change. We more figure out how to work with them and embrace them, maybe even. Yes. And it, and it's it it is a different way to look at it to say, I'm going I'm an, I'm feeling anxious I'm going to remove that anxiety. I will never be anxious. Yes, again. I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out how to solve this problem. Versus yes, sometimes I get anxious. What are my coping mechanisms right. to acknowledge right. the anxiety and then try to do? And you think they're very different. Absolutely. I mean to. To even embrace the anxiety, to really get into not just trying to remove it, yes, but to to allow it to come out, to to be free with that. Because I think one of the biggest things, the worst things we do is when we try to change ourselves. You know, I've got to I've got to get rid of it, and that trying to get rid of it creates a whole new set of problems. That sounds very Zen-like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're just accepting. You're saying to be exactly. accepting of your exactly. shortcomings or whatever. Exactly. I am who I am. Accept myself, and then you know, other you know, other people have to accept me the way I'm too. We have to accept other people the way they are. Yeah. Not always easy to do. Not always easy to do. But you certainly know, in a with a partner, you have to do that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a subtle difference. Mm. But it is definitely it's a profound a, a, difference. A, a profound difference, yep. because I think sometimes we're very hard on ourselves. Absolutely, know? we 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 may know that we have certain faults, but um, trying to fix it right. essentially is right. you're saying not. And the we best have approach. this I- we have these ideals of how we should be should yeah. should 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 yes. As Albert Ellis said, shit on the shoulds. <laughs> shit on the shoulds. I love that. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, should I be, I should be, you know, the perfect person. I should have the perfect mate. I should have the perfect job. Should, should, should. As opposed to who am I? What do I want? What do I want? Yes. That's so, you know, that is just profound. I can only be who I am. I can be the best version of myself, but I can't be you. I can't be somebody else. Just- and 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 also the mindset of 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 having to believe that you have to fit this image, which I think gets back. I think it's mm-hmm. destructive, and I think it gets back to this documentation of our lives and being, you know, and wanting to show that you have everything together and that everything is positive is detrimental. It's very detrimental. People, when they look at meaning in life, it's from relationships mostly. You think so, that that's the the core of it? Yeah. I think it's also from what we feel like we've accomplished, but even more the connections, the relationships, the feeling of, of 
you know, with children. It's, it's, the connections are important. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's important that we are, feel like we've given something to the world, given back to the world in whatever way we can do it. You know, not again the prescribed way. Maybe I can do it through my research, but not everybody can do that. So they make a good pot of soup. They help, you know, they serve in a soup kitchen. They help others. They make the world beautiful. I mean, we can all do, we can all contribute in our own way. Doing research has been great fun. I mean, because I get to, it's, it's creative, it's innovative. I get to study whatever I want. When I get tired of one area, I can go to a new area. And it's, it's just been incredibly gratifying. Clara's book, Helping Skills, can be found on Amazon. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email if you have ideas, thoughts, or feedback. I read them all. That's hello at themegrobinsonshow.com. Hope you'll tune in next time for more of the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson. <laughs>